the God of the humble. Amen. When you meet Jesus, he has a way of dealing with your pride. <laughs> it's hard to be proudful in the presence of Jesus. But we do our best to try. We do our best to try. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for sending us such a humble Savior. Great in power. Glorious in majesty. Boundless love. The deepest humility. How can all of that exist in the same person? But it does in Jesus. And there's no contradiction. Worthy is the Lamb. Who's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Ah, wow. Blessed be your name. Help us to see it. Help us to see him. Open our eyes. Father, again, we do want to pray my heart breaks for Pastor Scrubs Scrubs and, and Lord his family losing their Nashville and losing their daughter and all the two other families who lost children those who lost adults in that horrible horrible demonic event oh God surround them with your presence draw that church close to one another, that school close to one another and to you. Father, keep, Lord, keep your, we know the world's going to try to politicize and make movements out of this. Lord, keep your people from doing it. Yes. Yes. Keep us from jumping on bandwagons. Help us to see what has happened. Your people have been attacked in the country of religious freedom by someone who was broken and hurting. Bless her mother, Lord. Give her grace. Draw her to yourself. Give her grace. She deals with this situation too. Lord, so many people are hurting. Stand with your people. Shepherd your sheep. We think of the young lady even here at Covenant College, a former graduate, Valerie, who took her own life and then left such a condemning suicide note that attacked people we know. People we know from this church, we know. Oh God, bless them, Lord. Help them to deal with any guilt they may feel, may they find in you there is grace and forgiveness. And Lord, keep them from taking unearned guilt. That young lady was broken too and hurting. Oh God, show us how to minister to those who are struggling with transgenderism and identity. Help show us how to love them. But Lord, help, we, help us to love them with grace and with truth. 
May you draw such to yourself and show them how much you love them. Father, bless your word now as it goes forth. Help us to see the humble king and may we respond accordingly. Draw someone today to yourself. Show, show someone how holy and humble Jesus is today and how loving and how forgiving. Show someone today and grant them life that is truly life. Use your unworthy servant to proclaim your truth now. For Jesus' sake and the good of all who hear this message, we pray. Amen and amen. We're taking a quick side trip from our study in the Gospel of John, and we're going to spend time um, today in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I don't always do Palm Sunday messages, but this year I said, I felt the Lord was, go for it. So I'm going for it. Psalm, I'm sorry, Matthew 21 Verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her, and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you just say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, a burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut palm, palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you again, praise team, for leading us wonderfully in, in worship. Now, I don't know if you remember 1999. I mean, it was really a while ago now when you think about it. Can you believe it? <laughs> We're 23 years into the 21st century. That's just, that blows my mind. I dreamed of this day as a kid. I thought we had flying cars, though. I heard there's a prototype, but I, don't, I haven't gotten one, so I don't know. Maybe you got one, Leonard. Did you get, no, you, you, okay, just keep, keep hope alive. But in 1999, in December, Time Magazine ran this campaign, Man of the Century. Who remembers that? Man of the Century. Okay. Really? Only a couple people remember this? Oh, thank, thank, oh, thank you. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you. 
Now, man of the century, they were going to choose who was the, to be the man of the century and put this person on, you know, their, the cover of their magazine. Now, running with that, because of that, there was a huge campaign from Christians to lobby time to choose Jesus of Nazareth as the man of the century. Time didn't get the memo, evidently. They chose Albert Einstein, by the way. And if you were to go group, you can go online and see that picture of Einstein on the cover of Time magazine as the man of the century. I mean, people were really uptight about this. I was getting emails and texts, family members, vote for Jesus, vote for Jesus. Why were we so concerned that Jesus be chosen? If time had chosen Jesus, what would they have said about him? That he was a great man? And, is, and would Jesus really only be the man of the century? I mean, really, is that good enough? Jesus is more than a great man. The angel who proclaimed his birth said, he will be great, capital G. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. Man of the century sounds a little weak to me. If Tom had said yes, would there have been a victory for the cause of Christ? Now, speaking of victory, Palm Sunday is about victory. We call it the triumphal entry. Jesus didn't call it that, but that's what we call it. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem, into the holy city. If it was a triumph, how did he defeat his foes? He didn't defeat them by winning a popularity contest. He did it by the humble, loving sacrifice of his own life for our sins. This is the Jesus we need to know. In this time in our country, when more and more we hold to the truth of Jesus and seek to live in his righteousness, are becoming less popular. <laughs> We're less popular. At one point in our nation's history, Christianity was held up. Then in the 20th century, especially toward the mid, toward the, toward the end, people were apathetic to Christianity. It's not so bad, not so good, whatever. Now, we're slipping to the other side where our values are becoming the enemy and have become the enemy. How are we going to represent Jesus and win people away from darkness in this atmosphere? I want to focus on the big question of this passage. There's a big question in this passage that I read. It's verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? That's not the minor point. That's the major point. The evangelist John is designed this section to answer. 
Who is this? I want to survey three cultures with you that try to answer that all, this all-important question, who is Jesus? First of all, let's start with, when asked who Jesus is, what do people say today? Throughout history, Jesus has been seen, as I said before, as a great man. Has any man done more for humanity than Jesus? Even Napoleon Bonaparte talked about the greatness of Jesus. He saw him as a greater conqueror than him. And without blood, Napoleon. Some see him as a great religious leader. His ethic of love is supreme. Thomas Jefferson thought of Jesus that way. He didn't believe he was son of God, he was divine, but if you, re if you go back and Google the Jefferson Bible, Jefferson loved the ethics of Jesus and, and tried to infuse them into our country, but at the same time, his Bible, you'll, if you ever look at it or hear, read about it, he carved out everything miraculous. He cut up his Bible, his New Testament, to, to get the picture of Jesus that sat with his understanding. He was a great teacher, some would say, great teacher. His ability to communicate deeply, yet simply, second to none. Many religions look at Jesus as a great teacher. He was a great revolutionary, some would say. He turned the tide on the powerful. Many oppressed people would, might look to Jesus and say, he's our guy. Follow him. Gandhi had great respect for Jesus. He's a great role model, some would say. Following his example brings us to our higher selves. He is what we are supposed to be and can be. Many in the liberal, we call the liberal church, that's not politics, that's theologic, theology, Unitarians and whatnot, they look at Jesus as a great role model. Following him will make, get us to our best life now in our higher selves. Some would consider him a great social justice warrior. He fought injustice, elevating the poor and the powerless in society. We've got whole doctrines devoted to that. But that's all. And I believe, yes, he's all of those things. As you read through the Gospels, you see these traits in him very clearly. But is this all that he is? And are those traits even primary? Why do we focus on those traits? Why does the, our culture say, that's the Jesus we want? We can get our limited minds around those things. You see, we... If we shrink Jesus down to those things, we can understand him better. We can handle him better. We can use him better. That's the user-friendly Jesus. It also keeps our egos safe in our little ghettos. Because we can fix our problems ourselves if we just do better. See, if we just do, look at Jesus, if we just do better. 
We just need a guide. We just need a role model, maybe even a plan. Some have said the Sermon on the Mount is the plan. If we just live the Sermon on the Mount, wow, we can do it. We're not all that bad as human beings. After all, we are the top of the food chain, evolutionary speaking. We invented the computer. We put people in space. We invented the internet with Al Gore's help. And most of all, we invented the iPhone. We can do anything. I decided to look up. I didn't realize there were three of them. The Humanist Manifesto, something years ago, you know, we had to read stuff like that in college. Y'all know that stuff. But there's three of them. There's a third. Did you know there's a third Humanist Manifesto? Came out, came out sometime, I think, in the 21st century. Here's how humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without, without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. That's, that's how it begins. Beautiful, except without supernaturalism. I would affirm it. I would affirm everything else except that part, I think. And that, it goes on at another part. I wouldn't affirm, but it goes on. Humanism, we are the top of the food chain. Humanity can do anything. We are the apex predator. The Jesus, that Jesus, even if such would acknowledge him, and the ones I just described, they're all too small. They fail to grasp the magnitude of his person and minimizes our true and our deepest need as human beings. That's today. Who did the people of Jesus' day believe him to be? But they did have an opinion. Notice the people of Jerusalem are coming outside to see what all the fuss is about. See, the crowd's coming in. The crowd's gathered out here, and they're going into the city with Jesus, and, and the people in Jerusalem are going, what's going on? They're coming out. They're looking out the windows. What's all the hubbub? What's all the commotion? And they're coming outside, and, 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 and I mean, if you heard the ruckus on your street, you would at least pick, peek out the window. Maybe the bravest of us will open the front door. In our culture, you might get shot, but you know, the brave of us. You want to see. And what they see and hear is this. They see a crowd and they're crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And, and, and they're talking about a man. Well, then who is it? Now, I suggest to you that the people of Jerusalem recognize that language. That was messianic king type language. And so they're coming outside to see, well, who are they calling that? And notice in verse 11, the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Some of them, they probably would have heard of him because he's been to Jerusalem before. This is the final trip 
His third trip to Jerusalem. He had been there for various feasts. Remember in John 8, we've been studying how he was at some of those feasts. And he's been there in Passover. He's been there before. Here's his final, final trip to this ancient city. Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet. The prophet, they say. Islam sees him that way. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet. When we were in the UK, Sandy and I took, a, we were in Manchester, England, we took, um, we took a couple Ubers around to visit some folk, Bible studies and whatnot, and both times we got Muslim drivers. And Manchester people, the Mancuans, are very talkative, very friendly people. And so, yeah, they're down-the-earth, salt-of-the-earth kind of folk. And so we started, we thought maybe we start Try to witness to this guy. And we didn't know where he was from. And I think one guy, I'm pretty sure one guy said he was from Bangladesh. Um, and he's, he's Muslim. He begins telling us about his family. And we're talking. And we get to talking about Jesus. And that's what he, he said. Jesus, oh yes, blessed be the prophet Jesus. And me and Sandy begin to try to subtly talk to him about who, how he's more than that. This is not the first time people have asked this question about the identity of Jesus in the Gospels. You know this, right? In Mark chapter 4, verse 41, it says, They were filled with great fear and said, this is when Jesus calmed the storm on the boat. Remember they're out there? He's sleep on the boat because he's so tired and the disciples are rowing for their lives. But they wait, they're rowing for their lives, and so they're filled with great fear, and, 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 and they're, they're scared. And this is before, they're scared, and they they're think they're going to drown. They, they, they wake up Jesus to row. Let's get, you got to help us. They had no idea what he was going to do, so this is what happened. They, Jesus stared to the wind and the waves, peace be still. No one expected that. And this is the response. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Disciples thought the minnow was going down. They're going to join Gilligan on the island. (laughs) And Jesus said, not today. Peace be still. And the text, you got to read, the text is powerful because when, 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 when they, literally it says, they feared fear greatly. They were terrified, not of the sea anymore, but of Jesus. King James says like this, what manner of man is this? He ain't like us, B.B. He ain't like us, Brother Elderberg. He ain't like us. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. In Luke 5, Jesus forgives a man his sins. And here's the question from, from religious leaders, Luke 5, 21. Scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? In a smaller scenario, something similar happens in Luke 7, 48 and 49. A woman of ear, they consider of ill repute comes in and lavishes love on Jesus. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? Twice, who is this? Who, forg- who is this guy? In Luke 9, 9, <laughs> even the political leaders are concerned. Herod said, John, I beheaded. They heard about Jesus' ministry. Herod had put John the Baptist to death. And now he's, now he's concerned. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? He heard about the miracles Jesus was doing. And he sought to see him. Who is this? I got to go check this guy out. Because people were even saying that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. Herod is all wigged out. <laughs> Some said Elijah the prophet had come back. You see, Jesus' contemporaries were all perplexed about who Jesus was. Everybody keeps asking the same question. Who is this? Today, we ask the same question. Who is this? I like to collect magazines, and I I think it was um, National Geographic this year has a big spread, art, big book, a whole magazine about Jesus in the beginning of Christianity. Over the years, I think it's time, has a picture of Jesus on the cover Artist rendition of Jesus on the cover and and this who is this? Who is this? Who is this? We ask it, they asked it. But who does the Bible say Jesus is? Who does let's let's turn to the passage one more time and we're gonna try to walk through this real quick. Jesus is basically shouting his identity for all to hear. Now, there is discussion, debate about what the first thing he does here in this passage. When he sends the disciples to go get the donkey, some see that as he knew without knowing. You know what I'm saying? He, they see that as a possible a miracle. Some see it as he had already arranged that because he knew the people. We don't know for sure. I think it was some, a kind of a miracle of knowing, personally. But the idea, though, he sends his two disciples in to get the donkey, and he says, it's, in, you know, it's kind of like borrowing somebody's car. I want you to go borrow that, go, go borrow Brother Zimmerman's car, and, and we're going and, and to take that into Jerusalem. And so, so, so they go up, so they go, and they get, they get the donkey, and they come back out, and, and he even tells them what to say. If, if anyone stops you, because, you know, you're taking somebody's car, they just might stop you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them the Lord has need of it. Stop there for a minute. Just linger, just for a second. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, who we believe he is as Christians, he has the right to all of our stuff. So if Jesus says, I want you to use that car for ministry, that house you live in for ministry, I, I, I want you to give that thing away because you got too many of those. Give that away. Give that one away. You know, he can say that, right? He, it's okay with you? For many of us, it's not. Because we're holding on to our stuff like this. Because our culture has told us that our lives consist in how much stuff and the quality of stuff that we have. And we believe it. We believe it. So I wonder. But anyway, this guy evidently believed in Jesus, and so he sent he sent the donkey the two he sent the mother donkey with a baby donkey. Two donkeys went. Okay? Why both donkeys? Well, because the, the mother calms the baby. The baby wasn't tiny. It was big enough to carry Jesus because he sits on the younger, the colt. 
But with mom there, leading, mom leading, he's much more cooperative. They knew that. They've done that in that culture many times. So this is what happened. But ask the important question. Why does he choose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? If he was, if he was merely a revolutionary come to deliver his people from oppression, shouldn't he have chosen a great stallion, an impressive war horse to inspire? Shadow facts. For you Lord of the Rings fans, that was a little shot for you. I mean, the, the king of horses. That's what I would have rode in on, baby. <laughs> Me and Gandalf going to battle. Listen, there's nothing inspirational about a donkey unless you see stubbornness as your favorite trait. To us, the donkey is like the president of the United States riding into Washington, D.C. after winning the election, and he rides in in a Honda. Instead of the Cadillac limo that they call the beast. Oh, I love that. Barack Obama was the first one to use the beast, by the way. I mean, imagine if that your guy won the election and he rode into to, for his inauguration. He shows up in a Honda. Americans would be upset. He's denigrating the office. He's not taking the office or she the office seriously. We would be upset because he's not representing us in the way to which we want to become accustomed. America. Limo, limo, baby, limo all the way. Represents prosperity, dignity, power. He comes in on a donkey. First of all, ancient kings would ride on donkeys on occasion. We see that happening with David. 2 Samuel 16, 2, David and his family were brought donkeys to ride in on the most important passage to me is when David, David is dying and he decides to make Solomon king. And there's, a, there's actually a split in the kingdom over another, one of Solomon's brothers is being anointed king. And David says, okay, take my donkey. This is 1 Kings 1, 33 and 38. King David say, you are, you're going to be king and take my donkey, put him on it and proclaim it as king throughout the land. So you see, in ancient Israel, the donkey was, could be a royal mount. But listen, it makes a statement. It says the king comes in peace to reign. He comes in peace. But mostly the Lord Jesus is lifting this page, as you know, out of the Old Testament, right out of prophecy, right out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice! Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That, that prophecy is, is, is during the time of Zerubbabel, during the time when in, in Ezra, Right, go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. During that time, this is where that prophecy is given. So hundreds of years before the prophet Zechariah sees the coming of the great king into the city of Jerusalem, and he's not coming in the beast, he's not coming in the war horse, he's coming on the donkey because he is peace and righteousness and humble. 
He's a divine warrior. Go back and read Zechariah chapter 9. When you read it, you'll see in the beginning, it talks about how God's going to conquer the nations who persecuted his people. Then at the end of it, he comes back to that idea of conquering. But in the middle, where we find Zechariah 9, 9, he speaks of one that he will sing. He will send a king who will come into the city, who will come to his people, and he will be the king they've been waiting for. During, during the time of Zerubbabel, there was no king in Israel. But now, he says, there, Zerubbabel, get ready, baby. There will be, there one, one will come. There will come a king. And, he, and they talk about his reign will be forever. He will conquer all his foes. But how does he do it? First of all, he comes in peace. He comes in peace with deep humility. He comes to declare, he is declaring who he is. Their king, our king. The one who will never be voted out of office. The one who will never die like Queen Elizabeth. The longest reigning monarch ever is Jesus. Jesus. The people honor him. You see what's happening. They honor him. They, 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 want, they, they put their cloaks on the donkey so he doesn't have to touch it. He sits in on the donkey and, and, and they won't even let the donkey's feet touch the ground, kids. Isn't it beautiful? You see, they lay their cloaks on the ground so that even his donkey doesn't get his feet dirty. They put palm branches. They create this royal red carpet into the city. And it's all done spontaneously because the people are excited. They recognize in Jesus one who is great. They cry out using Psalm, a portion of Psalm 118, which is the Egyptian halal. It's, it's, a, it's one of the Psalms that's sung at Passover. Isn't that important? Because now they're coming in. This time of Palm Sunday is just a week before Passover. They're getting ready for Passover. My pastor used to tell us all the time that what's happening on this day is, the, is that they're bringing the lambs in into the city who will be slaughtered. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is coming into the city in triumph. Ready to die. And they sing Passover hymns. He may have even sung the, uh, that, that particular hymn, him and his disciples, when they were in the upper room. But like us today, they didn't truly know what they needed. They didn't know what they needed to be saved from. They thought their biggest problem was Roman oppression. Today we would say we need to save people from poverty, from slavery from alcohol and drugs. You save people from low self-worth, low self-esteem. Save people from racism. You save people from lack of education, from poor health care, and certainly bad politics. And pistol-packing grandmas on top of that. I would have bad driving. And listen, those things are important. But if that's all the church says, or even all she emphasizes, we lose our prophetic edge. We lose our gospel. We lose our message. We lose, listen, we are not a social service or political lobbying organization. Amen. Amen. We are much more because our Savior is much more. Yeah. 
Sure, we care about those things. We are called to be soft and light in this earth, and we are to engage in every aspect of living, bringing the kingdom of God and the reign of King Jesus to bear on all aspects of living, politics, art, music, uh, 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 science, all of it belongs to Jesus. Do you hear me? All of it belongs to Jesus. We leave nothing out. We go into all of it in his name. As you are gifted and equipped and called, you go into all those spheres. But brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel message. Their gospel, deliver us from the Romans. It was political. It was religious. It was social, it was all of the above. All the things that our culture says is good. But Jesus is saying, that's not your biggest problem. I've come to do battle against the forces of darkness that enslave your souls. I'm, I'm here to do battle against the hopelessness and helplessness that leads people to go into an a, a elementary school and shoot children. I'm here to deliver you from the hopelessness and helplessness of poverty that, that, that goes beyond not having stuff. I'm here to deliver you from the pain in your soul, from the hole in your soul that keeps you estranged from God and makes you think you're the center of the universe. We're all practical humanists. They didn't get it. Brother Leonard, they're waving palm branches. They don't get it. The palm branch was what, between Malachi and, and Matthew. 400 years, right? During that time was the Maccabean revolt of the Jewish people, but he revolted against the Greeks who, who were oppressing them. And, and Judas Maccabee, who led that, who became one of their, their great leaders, when he rode into Jerusalem, they threw down palm branches. Do you see what's happening? They're throwing down palm branches. Here comes the new Judas. Judas Maccabee. Good, good Judas here. Here comes the new leader. Here comes. They are thinking our greatest need is political. It's political. Take, um, take Israel back for Israel. Make Israel great again. That's what they were saying. Listen, I'm not making that up. I know it's a popular slogan, but that's what they were saying. Because they thought their greatest problem was the fact their bodies were oppressed. It was a problem, but not their greatest problem. Family, we have our children waving palm branches. They should be riding in here on donkeys. I don't mean politically. <laughs> the palm branch is militaristic. The palm branch is not the gospel. Shh, don't tell the kids. It's okay. We can keep the palm branches. I'm not saying we should. Shh. But don't you be swayed. We're not waving palm branches at Jesus. We're, we're, we're humbling our souls and says, here is our humble king. How are we going to win? How are we going to defeat the forces of darkness? How are we? Well, oh, tweet back. 
Paul Tripp in his book, Reactivity, talks about how Christians on social media decry, we decry injustice. We decry policies we don't like. We decry doctrinal error. And we do it with evil, with anger. And we attack and we smash each other. Hulk must smash. Kill, kill. Get, put down the arguments. Ha, ha, ha. Show who's best, who's smartest. And we just go, we are pathetic. We have forgotten that our king comes in victor to bring victory, humble, riding on a donkey. He comes in peace. However, listen, listen, John said it best in John 1, John 1, 14. Jesus is full of grace and truth. The donkey, here he is in Jerusalem, grace and truth coming into the city. He's coming in humble. He's coming in, but, and, but read on later, the next section, he cleanses the temple. He throws out the money changers. Truth! But he comes with grace and truth. We want to come with truth with no grace. We don't look like him, brothers and sisters, when we do that. We are not preaching the gospel like that. Grace without truth has no message. It's weak. Truth without grace is brutal and will kill the impact of the message. How do you talk on social media? Hey, listen, we got to change our tactics, y'all. Now, some of you don't fall for this, amen, so if you just write it off and you just praise God. You, you're not, this is not you. But we can't sacrifice either grace nor truth. We can't sacrifice neither humility or truth, gentleness nor truth. We can't, they all go together in Jesus. Who do you need to apologize to online or maybe even in person? Because you've come to them with truth, but no grace, no humility, no gentleness. You see, that's what we're being accused of. We're being accused by the transgender community and other communities. We're being accused that those Christians say, the reason that girl dies is because those Christians Listen, we are welcoming but not affirming. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. We welcome, we love, we put our arms around everyone who is hurting. No matter what their identity is, no matter who they claim to be, we put our arms around them because they bear the imago Dei, the image of God, and we say we love you. We care about you. We will do everything we can to help you. We love you. But then there's truth. And the good news is that, the bad news is that's not the life God wants you to live. Whoever you are, no matter who, any kind of sin, I'm talking about anyone. If you are trapped in sin, if you are living in a way that does, that does not know God, you're trapped in darkness. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter what your identity is. None, none of that really, we're all, there are all kinds of problems that we deal with. All kinds of brokenness that we deal with. And all of it enslaves us and makes us think that we know the answer to our problems. And if it's not Jesus, we don't know the answers. We put our arms around anybody who's hurting and in need, and we want to love them in Jesus' name. But the truth is, there was a sacrifice made for your sins if you will receive him. There is one who loves you more than we could ever love you. And there's one who, will, who died that people like you and me might be set free. 
He went into Jerusalem on a donkey. But five days later, he will rise up on a cross. And a few days after that, that's the triumphal entry. When he, when he burst the bonds of death and will ascend to the Father. That's the triumphal entry. And he did it for you, if you will have him. He did it for you. And people of God, if we represent him, then how we speak with others with whom we disagree, how we speak with others who need to know what God revealed to us, because we didn't know it. How we speak and how we interact with them becomes so important. Grace and truth. You don't have a stallion to ride on. He didn't give you one. Get in your Honda and let's love people. Father, help us. We've been inundated with stuff that makes us say and do things that, in your name even, that pushes people away. And we, but the truth of the matter is we know your truth pushes people away too. Keep it from being because of us. <laughs> Help us to love people. Help us to follow him who is gentle and lowly and meek, yet he is king. In Jesus' name, amen.